Thank you. It's good singing. It's a beautiful piece. So many wonderful truths to hold on to there. Um, Let's just pray again before we come to consider the Word of God, please. Father, we thank you for um, how you stand, Lord, on our behalf, uh, that we have an advocate in heaven, we have an advocate on earth too, in the Spirit. And we thank you for these wonderful truths, Lord, that we can hold on to whenever we do feel weak. And even as Kyle was sharing, Lord, the times when we need those poles to cling on to, uh, we thank you that we have that in Christ. And we thank you for the support we can have in the church as well, Lord. And we thank you for the blessings that you've given us. So as we come together, Lord, to consider your word, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us and you would help us to um, take these things from your precious word, Lord, and apply them and to be encouraged, Lord, by what you would have to say to us this morning. Amen. Folks, we're turning our Bibles to Jeremiah 29, please. Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah, as many of you will know, had a special role uh, within Jewish prophecy. He was the messenger whose words would uproot and tear down the self-serving idolatry of of the nation that had just repeatedly rebelled against God. By inspiration of the Spirit, he predicted the exile. He identified the Babylonian Empire as God's servant to execute judgment on his own people, the nation of Israel. And that was a tough message for him to give. But he was also a messenger of hope. Even in exile, as captives for 70 years in a foreign land, God gave Jeremiah the words that he would need to comfort and build up his people. They were under ungodly authority. They were under daily scrutiny. They'd be a minority. They'd be a target, a source of ridicule. They'd be expected to conform to the society around them. These are times that aren't really so different in many ways to what we're living in today. You'd have elderly Jews remembering when Israel prospered and now facing desperation and hopelessness. You'd have parents dealing with the prospect of raising a family in a dark and empty society with no value in truth, no respect for God, no shame, and open and outright sin. You'd have young Jews growing up in a land that hated their kind, that hated their God, An entire lifetime ahead of them of being mocked for their walk and despised for their faith. And yet Jeremiah had a message of hope. A message of comfort, practical instruction for how they ought to live in the times they found themselves. Times appointed by God for them. Times that had a purpose for them. Times that had fulfillment And times that had a predetermined end. Just like our times. A practical message of comfort for a people in desperate times. So let's read together from verse 1. Jeremiah 29 verse 1. Please. It says, Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem unto the residue of the elders which were carried away captives. And to the priests and to the prophets. And to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. After that Jeconiah the king and the queen and the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, and the carpenters and the smiths were departed from Jerusalem. By the hand of Elasa the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah king of Judah sent unto Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, saying, 
Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. Build ye houses, and dwell in them, and plant gardens, and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives, and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, that ye may be increased there, and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city, whether I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it. For in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you, neither hearken to your dreams which ye cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely unto you in my name. I have not sent them, saith the Lord. For thus saith the Lord, that after seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. We'll end there in verse 10, and we thank the Lord for his precious word to us as always. I'm sure we all have our own tried and trusted ways of remembering things. Maybe for some of you, you use a diary. Others will use a digital calendar of some sort. Maybe you've copious amounts of post-it notes stuck all around your screen and work. Scribbles in the back of your hand, maybe even the classic string around the little finger. Well, about 20 years ago, when my mum and dad moved into their current house in Killalay, they obviously had to get used to a new address and phone number. I remember one day my dad was telling me his approach to memorising this new number. I'll just tell you the number. Some of you probably know it anyway. The number ended 821906. That's their number. He was proudly telling me that he'd broken this into two easy to remember dates. So you had 1982, 82, and 1906. 1982 was the year of the Falklands War. 1906 was six years before the sinking of Titanic. And it's not a great system, but this, this was the one that he was using anyway. And it seemed to work for him. Sinking of the Titanic or thereabouts. And the start of the Falklands. 1982, 8-2-1-9-0-6. You'll all remember that now. Okay, so that's great. Problem was, he was telling this to me. His son. The one that was born in 1982. <laughs> in case you didn't know, that's the year of the Falklands. My dad had made such a concerted effort to remember his new phone number. He'd forgotten the year I was born. And you can tell I've got over it since then. But for Israelites forcibly removed from their land, a land God had given them, a land in which he communed with them, a land through which he promised to bless them, I'm sure this was a genuine fear. Would God still remember Israel? Could God still be their God in Babylon? They'd never left. Not since God had given them the land had they left. Could God still be their God in Babylon? Did he even have jurisdiction in another country? Does prayer work when you're not in your own land? Did the destruction of their land mean the end of the promises? These were realities facing a fearful nation as they considered their foreign surroundings, as they questioned their heathen authority and observed an ungodly society around them. Maybe even today as we consider our leaders, as we struggle to fit into our culture, as we watch sin being glorified and holiness being trashed. We wonder, is God really as near to us 
as he was before. Times when everybody went to church, or that's the way it seemed anyway. When there were Christians in power, when society was generally good and followed biblical standards. Surely God isn't as close to us now as he was then. I mean, how could he be? But I want you to notice three things Jeremiah establishes about God before he deals with the responsibilities of the nation. Firstly, that the people were never out of his mind. Jump forward to verse 11. Verse 11, very famous verse says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. The thoughts that I think toward you. Thoughts of peace and not evil. To give you an expected end. I have plans. I have plans to prosper you even here. Even in this land. They were never out of his mind. And they were never out of his reach. Verse 1 says, Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem unto the residue of the elders which were carried away captive unto the priests and to the prophets and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive. They were always within reach. So God isn't restricted by borders. He doesn't only communicate in the good times. God gives his people what they need when they need it under any circumstances, in any place, and at any time he chooses. We are never out of his reach. Maybe you're praying for a friend or a family member who you fear has gone just a little bit beyond the reach of God. That's not possible. We are never out of his reach. They might be out of ours. We need to keep praying because they are never, ever out of his. Never out of his mind, never out of his reach, and never out of his control. Look at verse 4. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused. Whom I have caused to be carried away. See, as bleak and as hopeless as things may have seemed, God was reminding them that they were no less in his hand than the day they received the Ten Commandments. No less in his control than the day they stepped over Jordan and claimed the promised land. No less certain of his protection than the day the temple was finished and Solomon reigned supreme. And folks, no matter the circumstances, this congregation, this town, this country, this entire world is never a single step outside of the control of God. It's not. And yet we talk as if we've lost something, don't we? It's not like the good old days. Hundreds getting saved, unbelievers just walking into churches, revival. Lewis, 1949, Wales, 1904, the 1859 revival. In Ulster, traced back to four men praying up in Kells. Where's the revival this year? Where was it last year? Are we not praying enough? Are we not earnest enough? Was it only those four men that could conjure up the Spirit of God? Of course not. Those men could have prayed until they were blue in the face, and if God had chosen not to save a single soul, there'd be no revival. Do we really believe there weren't four men praying with the same sincerity ten years before or every year since? 
I'm not saying we shouldn't ask God to move. Those men are a wonderful example of faith. And we should emulate them. But it's not the reason thousands came to Christ. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away, whom I have caused to be carried away. Do you know, we could look at reasons. We could blame the nation. We could bemoan their lack of prayer. But ultimately, it was God who determined that these were the times they would now be living in. Today, there are thousands being saved in China. While only a few come to Christ here. 150 years ago, it was the other way around. Why? Because God has determined that these are the times that we live in. Israel could have looked at their environment and presumed they'd lost his blessing, his fellowship, his protection, his provision and his care. But God said, no, you are my people. You're never out of my mind. You're never out of my reach. And you're never out of my control. We live in a very different time, but this is the time God has chosen for us to live in. Not a thriving age of revival or a a desperate period of persecution, and those may come, either of them. But a time of apathy and disinterest. A time of small things. But praise God for them. Because these are the times that he has given us to live in. He hasn't forgotten us. He hasn't passed us by. He's placed us here in Sinfield for a purpose. And he wants us to fulfill it. That's what the prophet goes on to share from verse 5. He says, the Lord of hosts, the one who brought you into these times, the Lord of hosts says, I want you to what? I want you to build houses. I want you to dwell in them. I want you to plant gardens and eat the fruit of them. Having established God's continued and unwavering care, irrespective of their surroundings, Jeremiah says, God now wants you to live fully. He wants you to live fully, build houses, and enjoy them. Plan for the future, plant crops, enjoy the fruit of your labors. I want you to live. Not shrink into a ball of fear. Not hold back from enjoying life because all around is evil. I want you to live. At a Hindu festival in India, teenagers walk on hot coals because they believe that their pain will be rewarded with blessing. At Lourdes in France, pilgrims ascend the holy stairs on their knees thinking the discomfort will earn them favor with God. Strict monks have for years inflicted harm on themselves to show commitment to the religious cause. And I think we sometimes fall into that trap as well. Somehow believing that any joy and pleasure we get from this world is somehow validating its beliefs. That to benefit from the government is to publicly approve of their practices or that planning for the future is denying the temporary nature of our existence. But God says, I want you to build and enjoy it. I want you to plant and take pleasure in it. You don't have to inflict pain on yourself to understand sin in the world. 
Don't be ashamed, my people, to plan for your future and take pleasure in it. Even here, even in Babylon. He also says, don't be afraid to let your children go. Don't be afraid to let your children go. Verse 6, take wives, beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters husbands that they may bear sons and daughters. They needed to be told this. They needed to be told that family life was to continue as normal. New families established, children leaving the nest and forming their own relationships. This one may be a wee bit harder for us. It certainly seemed easier 50 years ago. People didn't hate Christians as much. Schools taught biblical truth. Vile, sinful behavior wasn't continually broadcast into our homes and under our phones. So tempting to wrap our children up in cotton wool and shield them from everything that's out there. And of course, that's part of our role as parents to protect them. But God says the cycle has to continue. We can't preserve them forever. We can't lock them away and withhold them from the genuine joys of lifetime with friends. Opportunities to socialize, sports, holidays, studies and careers that might take them away from us. Relationships. This world is a scary place and yes, we want to protect our children. But even in times like these, think of the times that they were living in. Even in times like these, the Lord wants us to live fully. He wants our children to experience the common blessings he's given to mankind because they still exist. I know it's a hard balance, particularly for parents of teenagers, and we're not there yet, so I know that I can't really speak to it. But we have to let them go. Proverbs 22, verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he was old, he will not depart from it. Do you know the way we test that? We let them go. We let them make mistakes. We let them learn the hard way. We can train them. I'm sure at times we'll wish we'd trained them better. But we can't live their lives for them. We need to train them up and send them out. The cycle must continue. Why must the cycle continue? End of verse 6. Because without it there would be no growth. Take wives for your sons, husbands for your daughters, that ye may be increased there and not diminished. You see, without progression there can be no growth. They had to live. Experience life, face dangers, learn to recognize them. Learn themselves to cry out for help. Not just hide under the bed and wait for better times. They had to know it for themselves. Parents, are we holding our children back from personal growth with God? Because we don't trust God to keep them. If your children are saved, it's important to be open about the sins that are out there. They need to know. And better they hear it from us than hear it from the world. Train them. Not to be naive and sheltered little housemates for us, but to be strong, aware, and informed ambassadors for Christ out there.
you were to grow a seedling in a little pot in your greenhouse, you know at some point that plant will outgrow its surroundings. You can keep it in the pot and it'll flower and look beautiful, but it'll never reach its full potential. Likewise, our children will never reach full spiritual maturity until they're exposed to the world. We need to take that flower and plant it in the garden. Place it in the open soil and let it grow. Of course, then it's the mercy of the elements. It's exposed to the parasites. It's a genuine risk of being eaten. Those things are real and we're the ones that put it there. That's hard. But if we were to keep that little plant in the greenhouse away from all the badness, it would never, ever grow to its full potential. So what do we do? We train it. We make absolutely sure that little plant is as strong, robust, and resilient as we can possibly be before we send it out. And then we support it. We tend it. Occasionally we have to prune it. And we watch as it blooms. And we rejoice in it. Sometimes cry over it when it doesn't yield the fruit that we hope for. Praying that next year, next season, we'll finally see those bright flowers of hope. And know the training was all worthwhile. God says, I want you to live. I want you to live fully. Let your children live fully. Because I want you to grow in this place. Of course, living fully isn't a license to do what we want. That's really important. It's not a license to do what we want. Because God also reminds his people that they were to live faithfully. Live fully, yes. But live faithfully. Verse 7. Seek the peace of the city, whether I have caused you to be carried away captives. And pray unto the Lord for it, for in the peace thereof, Shall ye have peace? God says, I want you to have concern for the people. Pray for them. Seek the peace of the city. This wasn't a passive existence. They were to have active intent for the people around them. God's people were to seek peace. That word seek is really important. Sharon tells me that whenever I'm looking for something in the house, I apparently just walk into a room, take a quick scan from the door, and then declare I can't find anything. Obviously, I dispute that, but that's not seeking. That's not what it means to seek. To seek is to actively engage with what's in front of you, to lift back the covers and see what's under there. To go looking for something and not give up until you find it. We are to seek the peace of the city. They were to be active, engaged, and influenced for peace in a foreign land. That's a challenge to us, I think. Are we an active, engaged, seeking, and persistent influence for peace in our land? Do we bring peace into our workplace, into our families? into the community. The people of God shouldn't be a disruption. We shouldn't be a negative influence. We shouldn't be aggressive. Hard to live with. We are to seek peace. Romans 12, 18 says, if at all possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably 
with all men. But concern for others goes further than just living in peace, doesn't it? We have to communicate peace. Isaiah 52 verse 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings and publisheth peace. The same verse is in Romans 10 where it says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How shall I call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall I believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall I hear without a preacher? In these times, God asks us to live fully, but he also expects us to live faithfully as messengers of peace. How beautiful are the feet of them that spread the gospel of peace. Seek the peace of the city. Seek the peace of St. Faith. Actively engage with men and women about their soul. Have a concern for the people around you. And pray for the people. Verse 7, and pray unto the Lord for it. Pray unto the Lord for it. Pray for the city that has taken you captive. Pray for their salvation. Pray for their families. Pray for a realization that the God of Israel is the one true and living God. Do you know what would have been so natural to resent them? These people who destroyed their heritage and had no time for their God. But God says pray for them. How do we feel towards those who mock us? And dismiss our faith. People who make it difficult to be a Christian in work or in your community or in different societies or whatever that you're a part of. How do we feel towards them? So often we want justice. We want equality. We want fairness. God says pray for them. Pray for them. Where possible, seek peace and bring the news of the gospel. These are the times God has given us and we need to take the opportunities that we have. Live faithfully with a concern for people. Live faithfully with a cry of prayer. But also live faithfully being cautious of false prophets. Live faithfully being cautious of false prophets. In verse 8, we see that some of the Jews had taken it upon themselves to spread a false message. One example is in chapter 28, where Hananiah claimed that he had broken the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. And because he had broken the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, the people would be back in their land within two years. That was a lie. A so-called prophet speaking falsely and causing people to doubt the role that the Lord had given to them. If people believed they were returning in two years, they wouldn't have put down roots. They wouldn't have engaged with the people. They probably wouldn't have bothered to pray for them. They wouldn't have spread the message of peace in a foreign land. But that's exactly what the Lord had told them to do. And folks, we need to be so careful with our words. Do you know, I can remember sitting in meetings as a teenager And being genuinely discouraged by phrases like young people these days. The implication being that there were no young Christians that were actually trying to walk right. We're just all bundled into the same group. That really used to get to me. 
Or maybe when certain traditions and good Christian principles are presented as biblical truth when they're not. It doesn't mean they're wrong, but it's not in the word of God. In these days, we need to be faithful, but we need to be absolutely certain, absolutely sure that we're speaking the word of the Lord. Because if we're not, the effect could be catastrophic. You notice God wasn't concerned about the impact of this so-called prophecy on the people around them. He feared the impact it would have on his own people. He said, don't listen to them, for I have not sent them. Before we speak, particularly words of caution, correction, and instruction, maybe to those new in the faith, others trying to figure out their place in the church or their responsibility within the community, our young people, as they wrestle with a wealth of contrasting opinions. It's a minefield. Before we speak, are we sure that we speak with the authority of God? Are we speaking the word of the Lord? Can we take them lovingly to a passage of Scripture and say, can we talk about this? Can we look at this together? Can we pray together? Can we seek God's truth together? Because if we can't do that, then we risk being those who speak falsely. Those who discourage the people of God as they seek to live full and faithful lives with a heart for the people around them. The Lord wants us to live fully. He wants us to live faithfully honoring his word and his word alone. Finally, as we close, he wants us to live fleetingly. He wants us to live fleetingly. Verse 10, for thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you. In causing you to return to this place. The Lord wanted them to know they were only passing through. Build houses, yes. Establish homes, yes. Train up and send out your children. Engage with society. Live among them. But never forget that your time here is limited. We're only passing through. Their hope was to be in their deliverance. The Lord was teaching them three vital lessons that they would need to remain faithful in a foreign land. Faithful until their deliverance. Firstly, that this time would end. That's such an important truth for us to remember as we look at a world that seems to be spiraling out of control. It's so important that we believe this time will end. After 70 years, I will visit you, the Lord said. We don't know when our time will end. But we know it won't be a minute after or a minute before God accomplishes his purposes in this world. It's all still within his control. For when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. And it'll be when the fullness of God's time comes again that Jesus Christ will return for his church. Secondly, the Lord was teaching that his promises never fail. He says, I will visit you and perform my good word. 
I will perform the thing that I told you I was going to do. Every promise remains. My promise to bless you. My promise to be your God. My promise to send a deliverer despite the circumstances. Despite what they saw around them. His promises hadn't changed. So often we equate God's presence. And God's active intent in our lives. So often we equate that to our walk. When you're walking well, you believe he's near. When you walk badly, you think he's left you. The reality is he promised never to leave. He promised to keep you in his hand. He promised you goodness and mercy all the days of your life. He's not a fair weather God. He doesn't scarper when the going gets tough. The God of the Israelites promises to be with us for all time. And his promises never fail. Thirdly, he reminded them of where they were going. That's important too. He said, I will visit you, I will fulfill my promise, and I will bring you back to this place. He was going to bring them home. They knew they were going home. Not only would this time end, not only would God be with them until it did, but when it ended, they were going home. What a precious truth that is. So we bring these thoughts to a close. How do we respond to the circumstances around us? These are difficult times. There's no doubt about it. Times of uncertainty, times of immorality, times of wickedness, denial, apathy. How do we respond? We respond with hope. Titus 2 tells us that the grace of God to bring us salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, this present time that he has given, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. How are we to live in these days? We are to live for Christ. We are to love for Christ. And we are to look for Christ. That's how we respond. These are difficult days. There's no doubt about that. But God has called us to live fully, live faithfully, and live fleetingly, knowing that our salvation is drawing nearer every single day. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for these precious reminders to us, Lord. And of course, they are for your people, Lord, in those days when they were taken into Babylon, into a foreign land that really didn't understand them, didn't understand their God, didn't understand the truth and the promises and the hope. Lord, we thank you that you had a word of encouragement for them. Lord, you wanted them to live, to carry on, to continue. 
in all the blessings that you had given them. You wanted them to live faithfully among the people around them. You wanted them to live knowing full well that their time there was short. Lord, I pray that you would impress those truths upon us, Lord, as we look around and sometimes find it hard to see the hope in the world. But Lord, we know that you ask us to live with hope, to live in hope, to live for Christ, to love others around us for Christ, and to look for that glorious appearing of the Son of God coming in the clouds for his own. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement of it. We ask that you bless it to your hearts. Amen. Now let's sing together again. Please just uh, a couple of verse 638. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, uh, just to take him at his word. Uh, we'll sing uh, the first two and the last. So one, two, and four. Uh, please of of this hymn.